0: Hello, my name is Marielle Harris, and I'm one of the producers for 49. Just a quick note that this episode was recorded in September 2021 before Judd DeVermont departed the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Okay, here's the episode.
1: Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the Director of the Africa Program at the Center for Strategic International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council.
0: And I'm Nicole Willett. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundations and, like Judd, I served at the National Security Council. I also served at the U.S. State Department and at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all with a focus on Africa.
1: This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards sub Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode
0: is about Kenya, and we are joined by Ken Apollo, assistant professor at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University.
1: All right, Nicole, give us the skinny on U.S. policy towards Kenya.
0: I will try to keep it skinny, but there's a lot here. The United States established a consulate in Kenya in 1901. It also had a president's Mombasa, which was the headquarters of the U.K. Royal Navy Indian Ocean Fleet and a terminal port for several U.S. commercial shipping companies. During this period, one U.S. diplomat was told by a colleague that, quote, We come down on the anti-colonial side. We think that someday, maybe not in our lifetime, but eventually these people should be prepared for independence, end quote. Kenya gained independence in 1963, and the consulate was upgraded to an embassy. The first U.S. ambassador to Kenya arrived the following year, and the United States focused on development and promoted Kenya's economic integration with its neighbors. Vice President Hubert Humphrey and Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall as well as a number of leading US businessmen, visited Kenya in 1968. Even prior to independence, the United States was involved in supporting the next generation of Kenyan leaders. At the request of Kenyan nationalist Tom Mboya, the Kennedy Family Foundation sponsored scholarships for dozens of Kenyan students, and the US government subsequently adopted the initiative, bringing hundreds of students to American universities. While President Obama's father was not a direct beneficiary, he was inspired to study at the University of Hawaii because of the program. The United States had a working relationship with Kenya's first president, Jomo Kenyatta, even though he resented that the first U.S. ambassador, William Atwood, wrote a tell-all book about his time in Kenya. Washington, meanwhile, constantly fretted about the implications of succession. When Kenyatta died in 1978, his vice president, Daniel Ira Moy, took over. Diplomats and U.S. intelligence analysts expected Moy to be, quote, little more than a figurehead, end quote. They were wrong. Moy ruled Kenya for the next 24 years. Moy forged a close relationship with the United States, meeting with Presidents Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush in the Oval Office. At the same time, there were growing U.S. concerns about corruption, human rights abuses, flawed and violent elections in the 90s. Moy stepped down in 2002, and his handpicked successor, Uhuru Kenyatta, the son of the country's first president, lost to a coalition of opposition leaders. President Bush invited Moy's successor, Moy to the White House in 2003. A key part of U.S.-Kenyan relations has been security and counterterrorism cooperation. The Ford administration offered a squadron of F-5s in the 1970s, and the United States gained military access to the Mombasa port. Kenyan and U.S. targets have both been victims of terrorism in East Africa, including al-Qaeda's U.S. embassy bombing in Nairobi in 1998, and later al-Shabaab attacks at the Westgate Mall, Garissa University, and the Dusit D2 complex. The Kenyans deployed to Somalia first unilaterally and later as part of AMISOM in 2011 and 2012. There have been recurrent U.S. tensions over the Dadaab refugee camp, which Kenya wants to close, again, in part because it claims the camp is a breeding ground for terrorism. One of the most serious challenges to the U.S.-Kenyan relationship springs from the 2007 election, where President Kabaki declared himself the winner and a torrent of ethnic violence ensued, leaving more than 1,100 people dead and 300,000 displaced. The International Criminal Court indicted six people, including Uhuru Kenyatta and William Ruto. When these men run for president and deputy president, respectively, in 2013, and put the United States in a bind. U.S. Assistant Secretary Johnny Carson, former guest on the pod, warned that, quote, choices have consequences, end quote. Kenyatta and Ruto nonetheless won the election. The ICC eventually withdrew the charges against Kenyatta and vacated the charges against Ruto. After a fire at Jomo Kenyatta International Airport in August 2013, President Obama called Kenyatta for the first time. Obama later visited Kenya, the home of his father, as president in 2015. The Trump and Biden administrations have paid considerable attention to Kenya, arguably more than other countries in the region, possibly the continent. Trump invited Kenyatta to the White House twice and initiated negotiations for a bilateral free trade agreement. First Lady Melania Trump also visited Kenya on a four-country tour to Africa in 2018. As of September 2021, President Kenyana is one of only two sub-Saharan African leaders that Biden has spoken with before and after his inauguration, the other being South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. Secretary Blinken also visited Kenya on a virtual trip. So Judd, you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure in this incredibly important country for the United States.
1: Yeah, um, I'm sure Ken has some better answers, but I I want to pull out one moment that's in the history section, but we didn't really focus on in detail, which is the 2002 elections where Moy did step down and, and there was a huge amount of work by the U.S. government behind the scenes to make sure that Moy stepped down. And then we didn't have a candidate between the opposition coalition, the Rainbow Coalition that was led by eventually Mike Kabaki and then the other party, KANU candidate is now President Uhuru Kenyatta. But, you know, Secretary Powell had talked to Moy about the third term and there was a number of statements to make sure that he stepped down. And and I think it's a good echo as we talk later with Ken about the upcoming elections in terms of the role the U.S. can have quietly and in the background, perhaps not making public statements about choices of consequences, but really working with all parties towards a better conclusion. So with that, Ken, what should the Biden administration strategy towards Kenya be?
2: Well, the Biden administration should ask itself this question. What is the benefit of being a committed U.S. ally? Right. If you look across the continent, over the 54 countries uh, in the region, this question is not yet as clear as it should be. And so if the Biden administration is listening, uh, I would propose, you know, going big on trade, trade and more trade. Uh, I think it's a shame that the U.S. is still not a big trade ally in Kenya. Kenya is a member of the East African community, a trade bloc that's expanding. South Sudan has recently joined as a member. The DRC uh, uh, is committed to joining and I believe will do so very soon. Uh, After that, there's talk of expanding it to include Sudan and Ethiopia. So Kenya can be an entryway into this big region with hundreds of millions of people that could provide uh, an anchor, uh, if you will, of U.S. policy in the region. Kenya is also the entry point of China's Belt and Road Initiative into Africa. So if the U.S. really wants to compete toe-to-toe in in terms of great power politics in the region, uh, there's no better place to showcase the benefits of being a committed U.S. ally in Africa.
1: Okay, so Nicole how do we make it happen? And I'll just note here is that we don't know if the Biden administration is committed to a free trade agreement with Kenya that was started by the Trump administration.
0: Yeah, I think this is a complicated one. I absolutely agree that that Ken is asking the right question about what does it mean to be a strategic partner with Kenya and what is important to get out of that for the United States as well as more broadly for Kenyans. And You know, I think when it comes to trade, there's absolutely more that can be done. There's no question about that. And there has been for a long time. I think nearly everyone who follows Kenya closely has pushed on for years for greater commercial engagement on the continent for a bunch of reasons. And absolutely, it's a gateway to a much broader region. I do think it's complicated for the United States right now in terms of how they show up on Kenya because of a number of issues. First is some challenges in the region, certainly Ethiopia at the moment presents a particularly complicated space in terms of engagement or leaning into greater engagement, commercial or otherwise. For the United States, I think that's also true in South Sudan, and we'll see how things continue in Sudan. So I think that while it's really critical to plan for how you will approach engagement like that, I think it's also important for the U.S., to remain pretty aware of where we are in this particular moment in the relationship. And we do know that there's a pretty big election coming forward. I would like to think that inside the Biden administration right now, there are a lot of discussions about how to support a stable, credible election that reflects the will of the Kenyan people, not the will of the United States, not the will of, of anybody else, but just the infrastructure support that I think can be important, um, including support for observers and all of the hallmarks of an independent election that we know well. I I hope those conversations are taking place as well as scenario planning so that if things do not go terribly smoothly, that there is a plan in place for what the U.S. posture towards that should be or should not be with an eye on helping to protect the long-term relationship. I think, you know, we need to be cognizant that there has been some volatility in the election period and be prepared to consider how the US shows up in that space. You know, I think it's a tricky one because the United States has talked a lot about putting human rights at the center of this administration and I think there have been and continue to be some real challenges in that space between sort of the perception that the United States has and and what may be going on on the ground. And so again, While engagement, real engagement that shows partnership, and I agree that that's trade, is all important, so are these other considerations. And I think that the interagency needs to sit down and really wrestle with that as it thinks about its policy towards Kenya. So Ken, lots going on there. Do you have one big idea, something bold, really be anything outside the box that you want to put on the table when the U.S. is thinking about their relationship with Kenya?
2: Yeah. So while being cognizant of the many sort of the complexity of uh, U.S.-Kenya relations, as you've highlighted, I'd still double down on this idea of trade. And and that would be my bold idea. Right. My challenge to the Biden administration would be that, you know, if it's really committed to strengthening this uh, relationship, it should think beyond the bilateral trade agreement that was started under the Trump administration and think about the possibility of a regional trade agreement with the East African community. That would signal that uh, the U.S. is not interested in killing the AFCFTA, the Continental Trade Agreement that's supposed to promote free trade across Africa, and is willing to work uh, in a multilateral way with African countries to promote trade in the region. You know, I say that while being cognizant that, yes, uh, the U.S. is also, you know, concerned about the election, human rights and other concerns uh, in the country. But I think in terms, you know, those concerns are domestic political questions that, you know, America can only address as an outsider, but trade is a place where the U.S. can play a concrete role. And I think the interests are there that they would transfer into the next administration, whether it's, it's Odinga or Ruto, the two leading candidates who ends up winning the election.
1: Okay, Ken, this is the first time on 49, but we have a question from one of our listeners. Okay, it's not even one of our listeners. It's our former producer, Topaz Makulu, who, when I chatted with her about this episode, said, ask Ken... Besides world class runners, like where are Kenyans really making waves? Where's like the next generation of Kenyans and athletic excellence going to be?
2: Well, I should say that you know even athletics in athletics we're we're charting new new ground. We're known for long distance running, but one of our runners, Omaniela, just made just broke the Kenyan national record and is a top ten 100 meters runner. So look out for him. And then beyond athletics, uh, beyond you know running. Uh, we are big in Sevens rugby. The uh, World Sevens Rugby Series that was just concluded in Vancouver, we played in the final and unfortunately lost to South Africa. But it's a pretty big deal that, that we made it into the final. So Kenyan rugby is is big deal, if you will.
1: Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org/africa. Thanks.